If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up to the book of 2 Samuel, chapter 6. 2 Samuel, chapter 6. And uh, we're going to read the first 15 verses here of this story, this event, that describes when King David brought the ark of God up into the city of Jerusalem. And this is one of my favorite stories in the Bible. And I have a lot of them. <laughs> Don't you laugh when a pastor says, this is one of my favorite verses. This is one of my favorite stories. We, we're, we can get away with that. We're allowed to do that. So 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 1. It says, David gathered all of the choice men of Israel, 30,000 of them. And David arose and went with all of the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up from the ark of God, or to bring up from there the ark of God, whose name is called by the name the Lord of hosts, who dwells between the cherubim. So they set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, drove the new cart. And they brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill, accompanying the ark of God. And Ahio went before the ark. Then David and all the house of Israel played music before the Lord on all kinds of instruments of firwood, harps, stringed instruments, tambourines, sistrums, and cymbals. And when they came to Nacon's threshing floor, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. Then the anger of the Lord was aroused against Uzzah, and God struck him there for his error. And he died there by the ark of God. David became angry because of the Lord's outbreak against Uzzah, and he called the name of the place Perez Uzzah to this day. David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David would not move the ark of the Lord with him into the city of David, but David took it aside into the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. Hallelujah. Now it was told to King David, saying, the Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with gladness. And so it was when those bearing the ark of the Lord had gone six paces, he sacrificed oxen and fatted sheep. David danced before the Lord with all his might. David was wearing a linen ephod. And David and all the house of Israel brought up the, Lord, the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of a trumpet. Amen. Amen. Whoo, man. Powerful, powerful Verses here that we peer into today. In fact, the things that we're going to peer into for me uh, are just so holy that I even approach this message with trepidation. Um, there's just a, a fear even into getting into some of these things of, Lord, I just, help me to convey these things that frankly are even mysterious to me in so many ways. And so I'd like to ask you to just pray with me as we begin in this journey this morning. Father, 
We are hungry for you, Lord, and we desire to peer into things that are impossible for the natural mind to gaze on. We, we desire to be satisfied in our sp- spirits and our souls, God, with, with your word of life that requires revelation from your Holy Spirit. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would reveal to each and every one of us this morning who have an open heart and eyes to see what it is that you want to say. God, help us to gaze into your holiness. Help us to be awestruck and in wonder of you. Help us, Lord, to just see, and we want to see an increase of your presence in our house, Lord, that there be an increasing of your holiness, of your presence, that there would just be a draw to your house throughout the land, God, a blessing over the land that is just moving, God, through your people as a result of your presence being increased. And I ask that you would just anoint me, Lord, to speak of such things, to preach of such things apart from you, Lord, there's absolutely nothing that I could do, but with you, God, I know that all things are possible. In Jesus' name, everybody said amen. Thank you for that. So as we get into this, I obviously probably already gathering that we are really going to talk a lot today about the presence of God. And you say, well, okay, we're in this time of growth and focusing on growth, and how does that connect? Well, for me, it's very, very simple. Presence is paramount to growth, genuine growth that the Lord brings. And we know the Bible says, unless the Lord builds the house, those who labor are doing it in vain. We can have all the fancy things and all the latest technology, all the stuff that's available, and and I pray that we have those things, but I'm just saying, if the presence of God is not central, if the presence of God is not there, uh, then those things are useless items. <laughs> the presence of God is really what's, what's the, the support system for the growth that we are looking to see and anticipating. Jesus says, I will build my church. If Jesus isn't there building it, his presence isn't there advancing it, then it's not happening the way that God wants it to happen, right? And our efforts are in vain. And so this story that we opened up with is about, God, about David deciding to bring the Ark of the Covenant of God up to the city of Jerusalem. Let's talk about some context here to really put this story in perspective. Um, the Ark of the Covenant represents something very important. It represents the presence of God. We know that the ark was constructed by Moses through God's design on the mountain of God. When the Lord spoke to him about building it, it was covered in gold. Listen, this is very important. The ark had uh, rings, golden rings on the side of it so that it could be transported by poles These poles ran through the rings, and only the priests of God could carry the ark with the poles on their shoulders. There were very specific instructions. And the ark was later placed within the tabernacle of God in a place called the Holy of Holies. And the Bible says that the Lord would appear, and he would speak to the people from above the mercy seat of the ark of the covenant. 
It says this in the book of Isaiah. It says that the ark was placed in the temple and this place was considered the footstool, footstool of the invisible throne of God. It's the epicenter, if you will, in Israel of where God's reign and his kingdom extends from heaven and then into the earth. And we're here to advance his kingdom here on earth. Are you with me? So these are significant things. And I also want to give you just a little bit of a flashback moment. We start here in the story with the ark coming up out of a city and headed to Jerusalem. And there's a departure, and the departure is a major point for us. It's a departure where the ark goes to a house of a man named Obed-Edom. Everybody say, Obed-Edom. Now say it three times fast. <laughs> Obed-Edom, Obed-Edom, Obed-Edom. <laughs> So let's just back up a little bit, 300 years, give or take, and do a little bit of a flashback to see how we arrived at this place. Once the people brought the ark of God out of the wilderness and they were conquering the promised land, the ark eventually got set up in a city called Shiloh, and that's where it remained for over 300 years. There was a battle that took place with the Philistines and two profane priests irreverent, irresponsible priests that were Eli's sons by the name of Hophni and Phinehas decided that they were going to run and get the ark and bring it down to the battle with God's people where they were fighting the Philistines. The problem was is that these two priests were, they were corrupted priests and they didn't fear and reverence the presence of God. So what happened is when they brought the ark down to this battle, the Philistines actually won and they captured the ark of the covenant. So in the Bible says when this happened, listen, the glory of the Lord departed from Israel or the presence of God left them. Remember that because we'll come back to that. So they take the ark, the Philistines do, and they take it to their city called Ashdod. And listen to this. This is amazing. So they feel like, oh, wow, we beat the Israelites. We conquered their God. We've got their ark. We've got their God. We're going to set that ark in our temple, in front of the feet of the statue of our God, Dagon. So they decided to do that. The next morning, they wake up, they come into the temple. The statue of Dagon is down on his face, on the ground, before the ark of God. Wow. The Lord says, I will make your adversaries my adversaries. And so the next day, they thought, well, we'll try this again. Maybe something happened, a little tremor. So they set their statue of Dagon back up. They put the ark at his feet. They do it another night. The next morning, they come in. Boom, statue of Dagon on its face again. Only this time, the head and the hands are broken off, and only the torso of the statue remains. Dagon is down on his face worshiping God. That's amazing. So the people of Ashdod are struck with tumors and diseases for seven months, and they, they start dying. And they come to the obvious conclusion, we probably messed up here. <laughs> so they decide to send the ark of God away, take it back to God's people. It's, it's killing us, right? And so they send the ark back. It heads to a place uh, called Bet Shemesh, 
where the people of Israel are, and when the ark arrives, the people of Bet Shemesh rejoice. They see the ark coming in, and then they make a huge mistake. When the ark gets there, they try to open the ark of God. Listen to this. The ark of God had the mercy seat over the top of it that would be sprinkled with blood of the sacrifice to offer atonement for sin. And in their their ignorance and in their irreverence, they opened the ark of God. Inside the ark were the tablets of stone. It was just, it was so holy, even the priests, nobody could do this. And so what, what that represents is that the presence of God is available to us only because the mercy of God is in between us and him. And so when they opened the seat of the ark, it was like they separated mercy from presence and they died. Many of them all of a sudden started dying. And so they were scared, and they sent the ark away, and it went into a city called Kiriath-Urim, and it remained there for a number of years. That's where it's at when David goes to get it. Are you tracking with me now? So David sends the men down there, but why is he doing that? Actually, the city of Jerusalem did not become the capital of Israel until David became king. I don't know if you knew that. But David actually conquered the city of Jerusalem, and he set it up and established it as the capital city that his kingdom and God's kingdom would reign and extend from. And David had a very uh, profound understanding that if this is going to be the capital city of God's people, this is going to be the political capital, the military capital, the religious capital, if this is going to be the place then there is absolutely no doubt about it. The Ark of the Covenant, the presence of God, must be here and must reside here or everything we try to do is fruitless and it will will fail. So that's why David is going down to get the Ark. He brings it up and we get to this place along the way where this man named Uzzah tries to reach out and grab the ark of God as it's stumbling on this cart carried by oxen. And when Uzzah touches the cart, he dies. David gets very upset. And he decides, I can't keep taking the ark up to Jerusalem. And he sends it into a house that's close by to hold it there to just regroup and figure out what has went wrong, what has happened. And while it's in this house of Obed-Edom, something absolutely amazing happens. The house of Obed-Edom and all of his possessions are blessed supernaturally as the presence of God is there. So here's the question that we want to ask ourselves today. What is the lesson that we need to learn from the house of Obed-Edom? And what is important about this for us today? And I think there's two things. And I think these things are very timely and necessary, not just for our church, but for the church of God that desires a move of God in our land right now. Number one is that we have to understand the blessing of presence, the blessing of presence. You see, wherever the presence of God is, there is immense blessing that surrounds it. Does that make sense? We say it another way. Wherever the presence of God dwells, that place, that people will be gushing with fertility. Wow. It's like a river of life that just 
flows out, and it's a groundswell touching and irrigating everything around it. Not just by way of being fruitful with children, being fruitful with crops, being fruitful with livestock. Those things were all a part of it. In three months, while this ark is at Obed-Edom's house, in three months, everything explodes in multiplication. (laughs) He's blessed so much that everybody in the land knows it, takes note of it, and talks about it. Get the point there? The presence of God blessing his people so much that everywhere around the land, people look on and wonder in awe of God and talk about what God is doing among his people. But it's also true of the opposite. When the presence of God departs or is not, is not there, many times in Scripture we see those places described as a barren and desolate wasteland. It's It's dead. And it's not just from the trees and from the crops. It's spiritually dry. But when the presence of God is there, it is spiritually fruitful, fertile, and gushing with growth all over. We're starting to understand, right? The presence of God is pretty significant when it comes to growth and a move of God among his people. Obed-Edom and all of his possessions are blessed. And my heart really longs for and craves to see our land in such a state where cities and communities are being one for Christ. Cities and communities transformed. Historically, there's all kinds of evidence of that throughout time, where in South America, there were Dozens of stories throughout the early 1900s of pastors and church leaders who would walk the streets of their cities that were plagued with uh, gangs and just evil and witchcraft, and they would walk the streets of their cities and pray and seek God and get on their faces in in the churches and ask God to move, and then miraculously the presence of God would invade the land And people would repent and come to know Christ. And it is described in these stories as entire cities were won and transformed, sometimes overnight to the Lord. (laughs) And all of a sudden, the evil spirits that were over that land were broken off, and God's grace and goodness began to flood in, and everything was changed and transformed. Cities won. There is a, a... There are stories of great revivals that took place here in the United States in the 1800s. They're described as the second great awakening. There's a particular man, I love reading his writings, he's got great biographies accounting for many of these events. His name is Charles Finney. And Charles Finney was uh, considered at this time, among others, a revivalist, and he was what they called a circuit rider. Circuit rider which means that they were literally going from town to town, community to community, little village to little village. They were going in, and they were preaching the gospel and the word of God, but there was such an awe and a reverence that God's presence and God's spirit would fall in this place in this community that these entire areas would literally be transformed in in short amounts of time. It is said of many occasions, he said, I know of not one person in the village or the town did not repent and confess Christ as Savior and get born again. I know of not one. 
This is the kind of power and the kind of move that I am believing God to do. This is not subtle. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's not, well, we kind of do, you know, a couple. This is like, this is a mighty move. This is a wave. This is swift and massive. I don't know that we've even, our generation has even seen something like this yet. But I believe it's coming. Charles Finney was a circuit rider. It was his mission and his mandate to go around and bring the gospel in this way. You know, circuit riders, I guess we're on horses. And can you think about that? I mean, he wasn't Ubering from village to village, you know. He was riding horses back and forth. I wanted to read to you just a couple of excerpts from one of his writings about how he describes the holiness of the presence of God and the outcome among the people when the presence fell on the area and the village that way. He says this of one town, when the presence of God got so thick and people were listening to him preach and they just, in droves, were just falling on their faces in repentance and coming to know the Lord. He said, if I had a sword in each hand, I could not have cut them off of their seats as fast as they fell. Indeed, nearly the whole congregation were either on their knees or on the floor in less than two minutes. Everyone prayed for himself who was able to speak at all. He describes events in the days of follow that people would come and show up and they would hear the word. He said they would literally just turn around. They would walk out into the woods of the village. They would be out there two or three hours and they would come back completely transformed. They got on their knees, repented, gave their heart to Christ, born again. The grace flooded in and they said, I came back knowing that I carried my sin no more. Wow. He says this of another town. He says, as uh, there was a man that was traveling around the town, and he said, as soon as he crossed the canal by the town, a strange impression came over him, an awe so deep that he could not shake it off. He felt as if God pervaded the whole atmosphere, and he said that this increased the entire way until he found himself at the village. He, people were traveling around, and they described an unexplainable draw or force pulling them into these areas, and all they knew is they had to go. They would go and show up trying to figure out why they had to come only to meet Charles Finney or the folks of the village, hear the good news of the gospel, repent, get saved, and be born again, and then move on their way. Whoa. One more here. It says, in this town, it was a common remark that nobody could be in the town or pass through it without being aware of the presence of God. A divine influence seemed to rest over the place and the whole atmosphere was empowered by a divine life. Listen to this. There was a prayer and religious conversation everywhere, even in the stores and public places. Hmm. The Bible describes in 1 Corinthians of the disciples when they would go to certain places that people that they would come into contact would, would see something on them so significant that they said, these are those clearly who God is dwelling among. God is truly with them. So I think when the presence of God is so thick and so strong, I don't know about you, but I see this crazy picture of cars just stopping on the streets and people just getting out and just walking in. It's not, I got to get here. I, it, the presence of God is that strong and that significant. 
And if we will contend for that, if we will pursue that, if we will have a hunger for that, you know, David had a hunger and a desire for it. It wasn't casual. I mean, he was going after it, knew that it was a priority. And if we have a hunger and a desire for that and stoke that flame and the presence will be increased in the houses of God throughout our land. Listen, the land will begin to experience the blessing of the presence increasing in the people of God. Wow. Blessing of presence. But this strange situation happened along the way as David is doing this seemingly noble act to bring up the ark. A man named Uzzah gets killed along the way. Where did David go wrong? What happened? Seemingly, it looks like Uzzah had the right intention. He tried to stop the ark from falling. But we have to peer into God's word and God's instruction to understand God's ways. Listen, A.W. Tozer says this. If we are going to worship God, we must approach him on his terms. So here's what happened. They made a cart, a man-made cart. They pulled it with oxen, and they put the the ark on this cart. When God had very specifically instructed to Moses, this is only carried on poles by priests, and nobody touches the ark. So let let me say this. I believe that the ark on the cart and the bulls and oxen carrying it and nothing happening up to that point displays the mercy of God. And I believe when Uzzah reached out his hand and touched the ark of God as an unholy man, that the justness of God is on display. You see, God's word was available. David made the mistake of not knowing the instructions of God on how to approach him and how to transport the ark. I think that's why he's angry. It's because he realizes Uzzah's death is on me. Let me say this. As a preacher, as a pastor, I feel that way too. If, If I don't understand how to teach people about how to reverence the presence of God, then I am responsible for not helping them grow the way that they need to. This is on David. I think that's what he realizes. And actually, even though Uzzah dies, it's something meaningful that comes out of this. A great theologian from the early 1900s wrote this, The fear generated by this event was actually positive, for when people are no longer awed, respectful, or fearful of God's holiness, the community is put at risk. Wow. So we see the blessing of presence, and we get excited about that. We want the presence of God because of the blessing of that, but listen, we also have to Accept the conditions of reverencing the presence of God and the holiness of God in order to host the presence. Because as we also learn in this story about Uzzah and David, listen, 
The presence of God cannot be manipulated by man. In fact, we don't lead the presence, the presence leads us. <laughs> we simply host it. We can never get that backwards. Oh, and God has set things in order, and he has his instructions, and they've disobeyed, and they've erred. It says, oozes error, which, listen, in the Hebrew, it means oozes irreverence. Wow. Oozes irreverence. God has set some instructions in place, and that creates the order that we have to follow. Uh, earlier this week, we were, I was working from home. And Katie was doing homeschool with the kids, and I came out to do some things in the, in the kitchen, and she had several of the kids out there and doing teaching and lessons, you know, and I was, I don't know, trying to make some food or something, and turns around, and she's like, excuse me, do you mind? You're creating a huge disruption in my classroom. She says I'm like a bull in a china shop. I don't know. See? And so I thought about it for a moment. And I very wisely and appropriately responded, babe, if you're the teacher of this classroom, I want you to know I'm the principal of this school. <laughs> and it set everything straight. Everything was good after that. Right? <laughs> Reverence is a condition. Listen to this, Leviticus chapter 19, verse 30. God says, you shall keep my Sabbath and reverence my sanctuary. Reverence my sanctuary. David ended up figuring it out after that. He has the opportunity now to watch and observe at the house of Obed-Edom. Everything gets blessed. His whole household and all of his possessions are experiencing now what we would call the blessing of presence. Everything is increased. And this is the message to us today. The blessing of presence will increase around our land, but we must accept the condition of reverence. And God, or David gets it right after that. He realizes what has to happen, and then he goes down after three months, you can Read this in 1 Chronicles 15, but he goes down, and then the priests properly transport the ark on poles and bring it up into the city of Jerusalem and establish it in the capital, and the presence of God now dwells with the people. David got it right after he got it wrong. But think about this for just a second. Do you remember earlier when I said, remember this saying that the Bible says, the glory of the Lord departed from Israel. Remember that? When there were irreverent priests, as the glory of the Lord departed from Israel. What did it take to get the presence of God back? It took a man after God's own heart. It took somebody hungry for the presence of God who understood it's a priority and it's paramount for what God wants to do in and through his people. His presence has to be with us or everything else is in vain. The presence of God, revered by his people. We had a wonderful night of prayer this past week at our new building. It's uh, in the process of being renovated right now. And 
frankly, I was just overwhelmed with the turnout. Dozens and dozens of people showed up to pray, to seek God. And in the beginning, we talked about some very specific things that we wanted to pray for as a group, very targeted and pointed prayer. And then we just joined in in prayer. Everybody was praying, their hearts cry. This went on for an hour and a half. Shortly after the prayers began, telling you the presence of God fell so thick in this place that it was holy. There was a reverence there. Nearly every person that I could see was either on their hands and knees or on their face or weeping or just arrested under the presence of God. So I had asked a couple people, if you get some pictures, send them to me. And they took the pictures of the beginning when we were discussing what the prayer points were going to be. So I thought, I just want to post something on this because this, is a, this was a historical day to me. And I'm just so proud of our folks. Like, the reverence for the presence of God that was there was, was so inspiring. And so I posted a few of these pics. And then somebody commented on these pics that I don't believe I know this person And they commented, and they said, I am so appalled that there are people in here on their phones while the prayer is going on. I had a couple of thoughts. Number one, don't you talk about my mom that way. (laughs) Kidding. Kidding. She's still got a flip phone. She's not doing that right now. Uh, but I thought, you know, it just goes to show you, you ought not to speak about things you know not much about. <laughs> I just deleted it because I don't, I have a personal policy. I don't engage in debate or arguments on social media. It's like a spider's web, if you ask me. Idle babblings, Paul calls it, avoid them, they're fruitless. So I just deleted it. But the thought I had was this, if she actually understood what was really going on, then she would know what happened. The pictures were taken at the beginning when we were starting out discussing what we were going to pray for. The fact of the matter is there are no pictures available (laughs) that I am aware of from after it started happening because everyone was on their face and on their knees and in prayer and arrested by the presence of God. Understand? (laughs) And so the presence of God, it's, it's to be revered. It's to be respected. And the beautiful part of this is, is that God makes a way for us to have access. You see, before Christ came, there were limitations and there were restrictions on how this could be approached, on how God could be approached, his presence could be approached. But when Jesus comes along, His blood became the blood that was poured out on the mercy seat of the ark of God in the heavenlies. So that when we come to God now, the Lord is not looking for animals' blood on a mercy seat to say, oh, okay, I will dwell with my people. When we come to God now, the blood of Jesus is already on the mercy seat for eternity to make a way for God's people to have access into his presence from this point on. So much so that the Bible tells us in the book of Hebrews that we should come boldly to this place. 
boldly to the throne of God that we may obtain mercy and find grace in our time of need. So here's the tension. Are you ready? The tension in the balance is we are washed by the blood, so we've been made worthy. So God says, don't don't dance around this. Come boldly and get into my presence so you can have everything that you need. Come boldly, confidently, knowing you have the freedom, have the courage, the confidence to come and get in my presence because you need to. But there's this tension between coming boldly and also knowing, but God, yet alone, I am not worthy. But your blood, Jesus, it makes me worthy. I revere you, God. I'm in awe of you. I'm captivated by you. A God who does not captivate us, who we are not awestruck by, who we do not tremble before, is not a God who is big enough for us. He is holy. He is divine. Yet he invites us into his presence. He says, I fill you with my spirit. My presence indwells you now, not temples made with human hands. And he says his people are like stones, and Jesus is the cornerstone, and we fit together as a body of believers to form another temple that God comes and dwells among us in our midst. When we seek God corporately, we invite God's presence in an increased and intensified way. And there must be there's this ebb and flow for us in our lives between corporate and private, between getting in the presence of God corporately among other believers and experiencing the increase of that, but also knowing that in my private prayer time and in my own private life that the presence of God is following me and with me and available to me everywhere I go and I must have that. And I think each one supports the other. We come into the house of God, and some people are not familiar with the presence of God, and it's their first exposure, if you will. Wow, I feel God here. I've heard that many times. Feel his presence. This is different. And they're exposed to that, and they begin to understand, this is, you're created for this. You, you're designed for this. But there's also this need for that in your prayer life, in your private time. And so while your corporate stokes the flame and it flows into our private lives, I think it goes back the same way that we can't come together corporately with a bunch of people who aren't stoking the flames privately and expect to see the same kind of thing. It feeds into each other. And the presence of God is undeniable. And the growth that God wants to do in his through his people, it flows out of a people who are hungry for his presence. I'll just make this statement, and it's a very overly simplified statement, but I encourage you not to pass by it, to think on it and ponder it. We can learn to host the presence of God. We can learn. I say that because I don't believe it's just instinctive to us. I don't believe that we just all of a sudden know how to do that. We can learn. And we learn by what? Peering into God's ways. You know, when David had to figure out what happened, he didn't Google it. <laughs> you need to bake a cake. You need to find directions. Google's great. 
You need to know about the meaning of life. You need to know about purpose and destiny. You need to know about heaven. You need to know about what you're created for. Don't Google it, baby. You need to go to the source of instruction that's available for such things the natural mind cannot understand apart from God's revelation to him. This is where we find that. Hallelujah. And I'll close with this. We come to a place as a people, as a church, where I feel like we are getting ready to step over this line. We are getting ready to cross over this line into new territory, not just logistically and physically. I mean spiritually, too. I think we're getting ready to cross into a new place. And the presence of God is on my heart so much. But this place that God is compelling his people to go to, which I really believe it it speaks to the greater work in the land that he wants to do. I want to pour my spirit out. Will a people be hungry for me? Will they revere my presence, my holy? The days of dry bones religion has to be over. (laughs) The days of casual Christianity without reverence and regard for God's holiness has to be over if we want to see the things of God in our land. And this place that we come to, it's like a leap. It's like a jump into new places that God is calling us to, but in many ways, we are not given the details of everything that he will do when we get there. There's a lot of space that God has to fill in. And I think that this is a message for every person right now in our own lives. God's stirring hearts, I know that. God's leading people to big things and to big steps. But I just want to encourage you with this. Don't let the fear of the unknown prevent you from making the leap. And it reminds me of an old Jewish parable where there's a father and a young boy, son, in a house, and the house catches fire. The father and the boy get separated because of the smoke father makes it out of the house, somehow the little boy gets disoriented and he ends up on the top of the roof of the house. Father's yelling, the little boy is yelling, daddy, son. Father hears his son's voice up on the roof of the house. I hear you, son, I hear you. Jump, jump to me. Son's on the roof. I hear you, dad, I hear you. But there's so much smoke and flames. Dad, I can't see you. I can't jump. And the father says to the son, it's okay, my son. I know you don't see me, but you hear my voice, and I can see you, and that is all that matters. Now jump to me, my son, and I will catch you. And I want to encourage you today, if God is pulling at your heart, I think the step is big. I think the next move that we're headed to is big. It's not small. It's not incremental. And I think God is getting ready to make a move and make a wave pass before our land and before our communities. Not just a few here and there, but cities won, communities won and transformed. And it begins in the hearts of God's people. Will you make the leap? I'm going to invite you to just bow your heads and close your eyes.
And think about that for a moment as we close. What is God saying to you right now? What are you hearing the voice of the Lord lead you into? Where is he drawing you to? Are there things that are unknown that perhaps could be paralyzing? I would suggest to you that the bigness of God's plan should cause you to shake a little because it's not possible with man. But like the father who sees his son, our God is trustworthy. And if he's calling you to jump, you he intends to catch you Lord I pray right now in Jesus name that you would just speak to your people feel things guide us Lord especially would you draw us close together unify us around your ways we desire to be a people who hunger for your presence in our midst. And God, I pray that we be a people who are awestruck, captivated, in reverence for your presence among us, Lord.